Welcome to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul-centered entrepreneurs and the people who love them. Here we are, Sarah M. Chapel here. It is Free Coaching Thursday. Today we are going to be talking about what you need to know when you are hiring a virtual assistant. We'll talk about bonus strategies for course sales and when that's a good idea and when it's coming from scarcity mindset. We're gonna talk about growing an audience that actually buys from you and more. Uh, if you are new here, uh, welcome to Free Coaching Thursday. Every Wednesday over on Instagram, we post a little question box in my stories. And on Thursday, you can come over and get your answers live or check them out on the replay, either on our podcast, So You Want to Be a Witch. These replays are released on Tuesday over there. Or of course, you can just watch it in the Instagram feed. So many different ways to enjoy Free Coaching Thursday. Um, we hope that you'll participate, that you'll ask questions, that you'll share it with your friends. Uh, before we dive into our questions today, I want to reiterate an announcement I made on the podcast a little minute a little minute ago, some time ago, which is that I'm in the process of moving. Hey, Lisa, good to see you. Exciting, overwhelming, and I want to share that because there is a chance that we will be a little inconsistent with Free Coaching Thursday for the rest of August. I'm going to do my best, but just a heads up that if we miss one, that's why we should be back to normal in September. And I thank you in advance for your patience and kindness and generosity about me being an actual human Hello, hello, Grounded by the Moon. I'm glad you're here live as well. Um, so thanks for giving me space to do human stuff, though I'm going to do my best to be here and keep supporting you with this throughout the month. But I reserve the right to not do that if I am, you know, buried under cardboard boxes or something. Uh, let's dive into our questions for the day. Alrighty. Our first one today is how to hire a VA. VA is short for virtual assistant. If you're not familiar with that term, don't know where to start. Awesome. So VAs or virtual assistants are often the first hire in a small business, especially a small online business, for good reason. Virtual assistants are generally people who run their own businesses and specialize in offering certain kinds of support to very small businesses. There's a huge advantage here because these are people who run their own businesses. They are contractors. Um, I'm going to be speaking from a U.S. perspective and also, as always, not a lawyer, not an accountant, not an HR pro. So the information I'm sharing is educational only. And uh, please, you know, speak to the professionals you need to speak to in order to ensure that it is correct and the right choice for you. But also VAs generally, we'll talk about this in a second, already have experience. They aren't going to be trained um, by you in a, outside of kind of learning your, your basic processes. So this makes them a really great first hire because often they can hop into your business and they already have some existing knowledge and experience in order to help you. And because they're contractors, it's a little bit of a low stakes thing. You'll probably have a month to month or a kind of a monthly package or a multi-month package with the contract. And they are professionals themselves, so they already Ideally, we'll know how to work with clients and how to support you and have like a really supportive and clear kind of onboarding process and all that. So I think VAs are a great place to start. Often, too, because you might only need like five hours a week of help in your business and that for most folks, it doesn't make sense to onboard an employee for something like that, though we'll talk about that in a second. So VAs are awesome. Great place to start. Also, great way to support other small business owners. Super fucking cool, right? The key things to think about when you're hiring anyone is why are you hiring them? What specifically do you need help with? And I think this is the number one mistake I see, mistake I've made often, um, well not often, but I, I did make it once for sure, but I see mistake I see a lot 
is not being clear on why you're hiring. Often we get to a place of hiring our first person or hiring our first VA and be and just being in a place of like, oh my God, I am so fucked. Like I'm overwhelmed. I am behind. We're, we're hiring out of desperation often in our first hire because it's something we tend to put off. It feels expensive. It feels scary. It feels um, yeah, like a big learning curve. This may or may not be your specific situation person who submitted this, but I see this as pretty common. So when we're thinking about hiring, even if you are feeling feeling the crunch, in which case, like, I feel you, I've been there. It is not fun to realize that you are totally overextended and desperately need help. It is worth it to take a pause and figure out what specifically you are going to try to get off of your plate. This is going to help you figure out who you need to hire. It's also going to help you do a better job of getting them embedded in your business in the way that they need it. So if you're not sure about this, one of the easy ways to do this is essentially to track your time during the day and see which tasks were the hardest for you to do, were the most emotionally draining. Um, and often these are tasks that you're just not good at. Uh, we all have different skills. One of my, my favorite things ever is that I am, I can fake being good at customer service, but like inbox emails are just really hard for me. Um, so we have an amazing team member who is great at people. She loves people, she loves it. It's awesome. So it's like, it's my weakness and it's her strength. We did that on purpose, right? Um, so often those, these are things you're just not very good at. Um, and sometimes it's just stuff that there's too much to do. So you can look at those things, yeah, that are in draining, that are taking a long time, that you're avoiding, and the stuff that's not getting done. And see if there's any of those are things that are outside of what you personally need to do in your business. Often as a business owner, when you're hiring a virtual assistant, we're looking at administrative tasks. So things like helping with email support, customer support, helping with tech, potentially, depending on how you run your business. Um, yeah, customer communication is really common. You can also hire virtual assistants to help with things like social media. Um, but I will say that with the caveat that you need to, if you're gonna hire someone to help you implement a plan, you need a plan. So um, a virtual assistant is not gonna be the person who creates like a social media plan for you. That would be a different kind of contractor. So figuring out what you need to hire for is the first step and then what skills are associated with that. Um, again, most like there are tons of different kinds of virtual assistants now, um, people who are really specialized in certain kind of project management styles or certain kinds of softwares or certain, yeah, certain different things. And there's some that are kind of more general administrative virtual assistants. So you want to figure out what specifically is it that you need help with. And I recommend kind of going through that process. And if you can track it for a week, you'll probably get the best results to see what you need help with. But again, those common things are inbox. Um, and I would say that could extend to Instagram DMs potentially. You could you could get some help there. Yeah, customer support, um, scheduling. Um, also, I just talked to somebody the other day who their virtual assistant does their invoicing for them. So if you're somebody who has a hard time like remembering to send invoices or like your business model requires that to be done manually or something, things like that tend to be the easiest thing to outsource because they're repeatable tasks. They don't require advanced knowledge of your business in order to kind of help people or at least to triage things like emails. And it's probably similar to other work that that virtual assistant is doing. So once you're clear on what you need help on, then you can start to look for the virtual assistant. And you're going to want to look for people who match those skill sets, right? So again, if you are looking for someone to help you post on Instagram, you want a virtual assistant who will schedule your social media posts for you, then make sure that's something that they do, that that's a skill set that they have and that you're able to ask them about that or, or see if that's advertised. Um, in terms of finding a VA, 
Often you can find folks through your local communities. I think there's a slight caveat here that I see a lot of people hire friends or hire people in their communities just because they're available and not necessarily because they have the skill set. And to me, I think that that's fine to hire people who don't have the skill set, but that's not a virtual assistant. Someone that you are hiring and have to train is going to be an employee, and that's a different kind of project. So I see people say, I'm going to hire a VA, and then they hire someone who, um, and again, that person might be awesome, but someone who doesn't have any administrative experience or isn't a VA, that's not actually their job, or even their part-time kind of gig or something. So just something to be mindful of um, if you're looking in your local community or posting, looking for, you know, like friends of friends and stuff. Um, see, is this somebody who actually has this experience? Because a virtual assistant, again, it's kind of getting back to this contractor thing. I'll talk a little bit more in a second, but it's not somebody that you're going to train in their skill set. They should already have that skill set. Your only job will be in showing them how you want that applied to your business. So there are a lot of websites you can find virtual assistants on. Upwork is a pretty solid one. They do take a fee out, but there's some benefits to Upwork in the sense that um, it offers really nice protection for both parties, which I do think is nice, especially if you're hiring someone on the internet that you don't know um, and it's your first hire. So Upwork has fees, but basically, you know, if the work isn't delivered, you have protection, but also the contractor has protection, which I think is really important. And I'm gonna get on my contractor high horse in a second. Um, the contractor has protection as well um, in terms of getting paid. So I think that that can be valuable as a tool. Um, you can always look on something like Indeed. You can even look on Craigslist. Um, but Upwork is particularly set up for that. I guess you could use Fiverr, but I feel like Fiverr is not, it's it's a little bit more like people kind of gigging, and a, which is fine, though they probably shall charge more. Um, but yeah, I might recommend Upwork as a place to look. I think there's a few things to think about here. The first is um, recognizing the difference between a contractor and an employee. A lot of folks hire contractors who should be employees. Now I understand there's a whole conversation to be had about like about capitalism and employment and um, the means of production. Like we can go there, but from a strictly like supporting humans perspective within our current system, avoiding having employees and the fees associated with that because you don't want to pay them that drives me fucking nuts. So I'm just gonna say that. You did not say that, I'm just saying that. And we see this a lot in the online space. That's why I was kind of hitting home earlier. Virtual assistants have their own businesses. They are not people who are gigging. Um, they are not in general people who are, it might be part-time or something, which is totally fine, but they're, they're not people who are, yeah, who are gigging. Um, and that's different because if you hire someone and you want to, for example, control their hours of when they work, you want to train them on doing things the way that you want them to do them. You want them to come to meetings with your team that they are not hosting. Those are all employee things. So it's really good to do a little bit of research and make sure that you're clear on the difference between a contractor and an employee. And again, this is US based, but I think these are there's some similar concepts around the world. Sometimes I see folks say that they think it's better to hire contractors because they run their own business, but we wanna be clear, a lot of contractors do not run their own business. They are gigging freelancers and they are being exploited. Um, be, and their, you know, their tax fees are just like your tax fees um, when they really should be employees. So obviously if you're hiring somebody five hours a week as a VA contractor, that's not, I'm kind of going off a little bit here, but it's just something to notice when you want to, again, if you wanna train them specifically in your systems, if you are going to be, essentially controlling their work hours. Um, there's certain requirements. You need to take a look at that. 
Often it honestly, it's not that much more expensive to just hire an employee. And with softwares like Gusto, um, it's super easy to run payroll for not a lot of money. I, we really like Gusto. It's like super cheap and easy um, for payroll. So if you do have a situation where you're like, no, I have very specific systems and processes. I want them to be well-trained in my business and this, that, and the other thing, you might be talking about an employee, even if it's only like five or 10 hours a week. Um, so just keep an eye out on that. Because ultimately what happens is like gig folks, you know, they are not protected by unemployment. They are or not. Yeah, not in the same way. I know things are weird now with COVID times and things. Some things have been extended. But um, basically, a lot of online business owners exploit contractors to get out of being responsible for employing them. Um, so that's my take on that. Um, but basically, that's where to start. What do you need to hire people for? Are you clear that you actually need a virtual assistant and a contractor, somebody who runs their own business? Um, and then you know, I would definitely put the word out. There are tons of VAs. You can also find just time. You can just search virtual assistant on Instagram. They're all on Instagram. Um, and I think the key here is to make sure you have somebody who you can communicate well with, because that's probably the biggest thing working with a contractor is communication. And you can ask them, what are your communication policies? How do you like to receive feedback? How do you, you know, how do you do the onboarding process? Like ask those questions before you hire someone and make sure there's an alignment in terms of how you communicate. Cause I think that's a really big breakdown often with contractors. And again, you can't control that. That's, that's not as a contractor, they're kind of, it's like you're entering their world when you're working with a contractor, they're not entering your world. So you need to know what the rules of their world are <laughs> respect to the world building. And then, um, yeah, so you can definitely just like look on Instagram, tons of VAs, make sure they're in alignment in terms of the skills that you need, make sure you're clear on what you're looking for. Um, also Upwork, I do think works fine. Again, there's a slight fee associated with it on both ends. So sometimes you'll end up paying a little bit more, but it can be a little bit soothing your first time out in particular because it's all handled on platform. The payments are handled on platform and everyone's a little bit extra protected, including the contractors, which again, I think is pretty important. Um, you know, they're not gonna be chasing you down to pay something. They have, there's some, basically when you work on Upwork, they take like, they like take a chunk of deposit when a project starts. So like you can't not pay one, someone if they've completed their work. So like, I personally think that's a good thing. It's a nice thing. So I hope that's helpful. I know that was a lot and I'm sorry, I kind of ranted about the contractor versus employee thing. And I know that's complicated, but um, like not like complicated to figure out, but kind of complicated, like are having employees and these, this whole thing. But I think ultimately that um, just making sure that you're properly categorizing people working with you and that they're being fully supported is awesome. So I hope that's helpful. Good luck hiring your first virtual assistant. It's so fucking exciting. Um, I think important thing with hiring is sometimes it won't be the right fit. And that means that you'll have to end it. And that's normal. Um, you know, you get better at hiring, you get better at asking questions, you get better at figuring out how you work and what you need from somebody you're working with and having like more of a more of a mesh in terms of like communication styles and work styles, you'll get better at that. But it, it, it can feel kind of like, it can feel hard to start hiring because you're afraid you're going to fuck up. You probably will. And it's normal and it's OK. And that's why also working with virtual assistants where this is their job, um, that can be nice because you can really ask them questions about how they work and they should have some they should be able to answer that. So it can be a nice way to like dip your toe in the water um, instead of just like instead of hiring an employee. So go forth and conquer. Sorry about my mini rant there. <laughs> Let's dive in. Next question. Uh, how to grow a large audience of people who actually want to buy your shit? Well, I think the first thing is you don't need a large audience. You need people who buy your shit. Um, so I just want to like, those are two different, those are two different things. 
Um, so I think that's like the first and foremost for me here. You know, conflating audience size with financial success is a major Instagram issue. And you didn't say this explicitly, but you kind of phrased it that way. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go there. Um, what you need is people who buy your shit and who buy your shit consistently. So growing a large audience of people who buy your shit means selling consistently. Um, I think this is one of the big mistakes that people make is they try to build an audience and then sell to it. That's hard. If people are not used to being sold to, if that's not the relationship they have with you, then when you start selling, you are making a change in the relationship. doesn't mean it's not possible, but it's hard. So the easiest way to do this is to just start selling from the beginning. So, um, and to sell, I mean, frankly, with abandon. All of you are not selling enough. I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> okay. Um, and I understand that there are other reasons you might use social media. There's other reasons that you do all, you know, I, I get it. But if you want people to buy things and to want to buy your things, you have to be selling. That's your job. And let's keep in mind, sales is really just about helping people to make decisions about whether or not they want to go deeper in your work, want help with the thing that you help people with, want the result, the transformation that you provide, right? This isn't saying buy my thing or I hate you. Right? Um, I think sometimes in our heads, it has this like hyperbole to it. That's not what selling is. So here's a few examples. One, I'm selling right now. Welcome, welcome to welcome to me selling, right? Um, I'm demonstrating my expertise. I am adding value to the community, I, I hope. <laughs> um, I am, but yeah, I'm primarily demonstrating expertise here. That is like the big thing that we do on this. I'm like, no, I know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm legit here. You can listen to me. You can see if you like my vibe, if you hate my voice. Like, it's a transparency exercise and an expertise building exercise. This is selling. I'm not actively selling anything. I don't have anything to pitch you today, but we are building a deeper relationship, right? And that is, I think the key is like the content that you're creating, the way that you're engaging, it has to be geared towards those offers. Now, person who submitted this, I know you're in the Holistic Business Academy. So, um, and I think you were on the coaching call yesterday where I was like, everyone needs to go do lesson 5.6 in the framework. Um, if you're in HBA, please do the lessons in order. You will get there, don't rush. But that lesson is a massive brain dump of the kinds of content that specifically helps people be ready to buy. Because that's the thing, just posting shit isn't the same as actively engaging in building a sales relationship with your customers. The things that people need to understand in order to make a buying decision are essentially that you see them where they are, that you see the possibility that they desire, the transformation that they want, that you can demonstrate, make the case that the thing that you have will can help them get from A to B and that you're the person who can help them, right? So it's that third piece right here that I'm doing right now. I am a person who can help you. Do you do you like me? I mean, you don't need to like me in order to work with me, to be fair. And I have a whole rant about that inside of HBA. But you need to believe that I can help you, right? You don't have to like me as a person, but you need to be like, no, but I think she knows what she's talking about. So I would definitely check out those resources inside of HBA and keep your eye on the prize, right? That size is not the same as people who want to buy your shit. And that the key to get people to want to buy your shit is to focus on sales activities in your social media, because also you'll get better at it. Part of this is practice. You got to put it out there, see what people respond to, see what people don't respond to. Um, you know, it's, it's all data testing. And the sooner you can kind of like approach it and be like, okay, this account, this audience, this is so that I can help find the people who need my work, right? Like that's the goal. And if you need to like, you know, build it, you didn't mention social media, you actually just use the word audience. I'm sorry, I'm kind of making some assumptions here, but um, you know, if you want to have other places where you interact with people, that's great. 
um, that's cool. But like you, maybe you need a personal account, right? Where you're doing personal stuff or something else. So something to think about. But basically the way to get people who want to buy your shit is to is to sell them shit. You got you got to sell them shit. <laughs> that's the answer. Um, so I hope that's helpful. And definitely go check out those lessons in HBA. All right. So making a course, considering a bonus, is it scarcity? Uh, I worry people won't buy or smart sales. Great question. It's funny. I'm actually working on this on like the risk mitigation lesson for HBA right now. So that's coming soon. HBAers. Um, bonuses are a risk mitigation strategy. What, what does that mean? And they're also just like kind of fun. Essentially, a great bonus answers a question. Um, and when we talk about like something like a sales objection, all a sales objection is, is an unanswered question. I think that that language gets kind of weird and we get kind of funny about like overcoming objections or busting objections. So a sales objection is just a question that hasn't been answered. Um, even if you feel like it's been answered, if it's coming up, it means it's not answered. <laughs> it's not answered for the customer who's asking the question or it's not always phrased as a question. Sometimes it is phrased as a statement um, like, oh, I'm not ready for this. That's actually an objection. Um, they don't they have a question about whether or not they're ready for it. So bonuses, when they work the best, is when they are answering that question or answering an objection. So when you're making a course, the way to look at bonuses that work super well is to look at them through this lens of, you know, what are the, the unanswered questions that your course doesn't answer, but are kind of like ancillary to it, okay? You are such a genius. Thank you. I'll take it. So when we look at it through this lens, what happens is we, we are able to then have a really beautiful, supportive answer to the objections that we actually can solve. Right. So an objection that's like, you know, money objections are a real thing, like ones that can be worked on with people. But there are, of course, money objections that are literally like, no, I cannot afford this. There's no you. There are bonus strategies where you can like create like a this may not work for your course and business stuff. You'll see stuff like, you know. 10 days to 5K to like make your investment back. I think those are fine, uh, whatever. Um, but you know, when somebody says, no, I can't afford this and they don't want to have a deeper discussion without that with you, like that's not an objection. That's somebody's decision. Like we have to respect people's like financial choices, not your job to convince somebody to buy your shit, right? But there are other kinds of objections. For example, a really common one is, am I ready for this, right? And that shows up in a bunch of different ways. Like, like oh, um, this sounds too advanced or, oh, I'm a newbie or, oh, I don't have XYZ training. I don't have XYZ experience. Is this still for me? Or often it'll come up through the lens of like um, phrases like, oh, I think I'll just wait until I'm a little bit more situated or I'm a little bit more grounded or I have my shit together more, right? All of those are people saying that they're afraid they're not ready. So a bonus then could be some kind of quick start guide to help them feel ready, to address the primary things that people think they need that they don't need or that they don't have. That would be a great bonus. Um, so for, I'm trying to think of something. Um, so for example, uh, if I were teaching a tarot course and people are like, oh, like, oh, well, I've never read tarot before and I'm super nervous. So I think I'll probably wait and study a little bit more before investing in a course. I might make a PDF cheat sheet with like my using kind of like the numerical elemental cross-reference system um, with keywords and be like, oh no, I got you. You'll have this sheet. This is going to help you to navigate things at, so you have a language as we go deeper into the cards over time, 
right? And that's something that like would be pretty easy to make. I mean, that's something that would be in my head and almost any tarot reader could just like pull out, but it helps to answer that question of like, oh, I need to go learn more before I do this. So when we're looking at bonuses, the answer is, can it be scarcity? You're worried people won't buy? Yes, definitely. And that's where like we got to check it and see, is there, if you have, if you're worried people won't buy, is there a reason? Are you like, oh, well, there's a, there's a step missing in this process. And I'm worried that they're going to feel like they aren't good enough or they're not ready enough, or they don't have this piece of information that then maybe a bonus is a good solution. And honestly, you can come up with these during your launch. If everyone's asking the same question and you don't have content in your course to solve it, then you can announce a, an extra bonus that solves the problem and just tell people to be released a month later. Like, just be honest about it. Like, okay, I'm hearing that you guys are having this problem. So I'm going to make a bonus training inside the course that we'll teach live in week three to help you guys with this problem. So it doesn't even need to be done. I mean, just be upfront about that, right? And um, when they'll get it. So that's how I think about bonuses. So I think that that's a question back to you. If you're really just afraid that people aren't going to buy, is it scarcity? Like, is it? <laughs> Back to you. Um, and I think the second piece to that is there's a few other things you can do. You can position things as bonuses essentially to help people see the extra value, right? So often something like a Facebook group or a community, I will position as a bonus because if you're selling a course, that's not the key component. The key component is the course material, but the community is a bonus. Like it's literally a bonus. It's not necessary, but it adds value. So that can be something and you can just position it as a bonus. You just say this is a bonus. Um, it kind of helps like bring it out and for people to look at it. Things like course recordings or like call recordings. I usually position those as bonuses because frankly, I don't have to offer them. We could not do that. There are a lot of people who don't do that for, for reasons they want people to show up live. I'm in a very expensive class right now where there are no call recordings. You have to be there or else, right? Um, that's a decision they made. Cool. So a call recording is a bonus then in my mind. Um, so that can be a piece of it. It's just how you position and communicate. I think that I feel like I had one other piece I wanted to say. Um, I think that's probably it. Oh, here's the last piece. <laughs> call recordings are so valuable, by the way, it's totally worth the like, there's admin on that, like, you know, you have to like download it and upload it and whatever, but it's totally worth it. Um, and like when the when we, once we do an HBA, we have to like review the captions and everything, but like totally worth it because then people can actually fucking use them. Though there are reasons not to, I can understand why. The course I'm in, it makes sense that there's nothing because it's very personal and we're talking a lot of personal stuff and it's just like, you know, having that recorded is, is maybe a little bit challenging for people. Um, oh my God, I lost the other thing I was gonna say again. So close. Oh, which is that there's, I don't have a firm price cutoff, but I also just wanna be really mindful of like, if you're adding bonuses onto your course and your course is like under a hundred bucks or something, or maybe under or 200 bucks, you are probably overdoing it. Um, that either means that that course needs to be more money because it's covering, it's going to a deeper depth if you're adding bonuses to it. So I would just be mindful of the price point and making sure that the things that you're adding are still aligned with the price point that you're at. Because if you're trying to make like a $47 course and then you're adding like 10 bonuses and now it's like a course that really should be $1,000, that sounds great for your customers, but that's gonna be a major financial energetic misalignment for you most likely. So that's just the other piece. When we start to add more and more and more because we're nervous that people won't buy, then we tend to cross our boundaries financially and in terms of our effort that we're putting in. So that's something to be mindful of. Um, and that's a great place to position things as bonuses without creating more content, like recordings, like a Facebook group, whatever. 
Um, so I hope that is helpful. All right, I'm going to hop to this question that was submitted in the chat real quick so I don't lose it. Um, best practices for email lists newsletter. Um, send emails. <laughs> No, I mean, the biggest problem with emails and newsletters is that people don't actually use them and they don't use them to sell. You know, I think like maybe four or five years ago, kind of just like straight up providing like lots of value in your email list was considered really useful. And especially now with like the rise of Substack, everybody is like, I do know you so well. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, we're seeing kind of a rise of people actually like wanting to read more content and go deeper and stuff. And I think that's awesome. But if you're a business and you have a newsletter, it needs to be a selling tool. Full fucking stop, right? You are, unless you have like monetized your newsletter, you are not paid to send emails. You are paid when people buy you things, buy, buy things from you. And they could buy you things too. That would be cool. I like presents. <laughs> I like presents and trade. That works. Um, so the best practices are essentially to email consistently, but you decide what consistent is, right? Don't get wrapped up in this. You need to email every day, email every other day, email every week. You don't need to fucking do any of that. Um, but you need to be providing the kind of value that actually helps people to make buying decisions and prepare them for that. So exactly what I was saying earlier about the kinds of content that will grow an audience that actually buys, it's the exact same kinds of content that you want to put in your newsletter. Things that demonstrate your expertise, things that inspire people to see the possibility that you help them to achieve things that answer the questions that they have, like, you know, any like kind of limiting beliefs or challenges or assumptions they have about your work. That's the stuff to put in your newsletter and then also your sales content. So I kind of still see a lot of folks using newsletters, like very much like, like it's the 2000s, which is totally fine. But like this, like, hey, it's me. I haven't sent you a newsletter in a while, but I wanted to send you an update on this. I've been doing this, that and the other thing. And oh, if you want to buy my thing, here's this link buried at the bottom of my email. Um, and you can do that. No harm intended if that's what you're doing, but it's probably not the most effective use of your list. Um, and again, keep in mind like what your business goals are, right? If you're mostly talking to your friends and you guys kind of like swap readings together or something, and it's like you also, it's like a more of a personal side gig, cool. But if, if you're trying to run a business, then we need to make sure that we're using it through that lens. Um, I think that my favorite newsletter hack is to just uh, pull shit from Instagram and rework it into an email and send it as emails and pre-schedule them for like three months in advance. <laughs> so that's what I would do um, because newsletters can be pretty, pretty, um, pretty overwhelming. But essentially, you know, your core content, however you're communicating with people, use it in different places and then make sure you're actually fucking selling. Um, people often need to see offers more than once. I would say probably three to seven times before they make a buying decision during like a launch or a, or a sales push, for example. So just keep in mind that like you need to sell stuff. <laughs> yes, I totally do this. And I don't go, it's fine to have a casual, um, a casual tone. I don't mean that you can't be like, hey, it's been a while. You know, you can be friendly, like, use the tone that works for you, but be mindful of treating it like you're emailing your grandma an update you need like that's it's not the same thing <laughs> your sales emails are not the same thing as emailing your family like an update so we want to make sure it's really focused on the value for the customer because that that's kind of what i'm i'm kind of teasing right now but often this is just like i i i focused here's my updates here's my this here's my that instead of being instead of like really speaking directly to the challenges your customers are having um and then yeah i would say Oh, the IG. Oh, sorry. Huh? The IG part pulling references. Great. Good job. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 
soft path heal your dearest pen pals. Yes. Okay. Wildkin, Dana, you're on it with um, pulling pulling references from Instagram. Fuck yeah. Repurpose your content. Um, you win. Gold stars. So yeah. So just to recap real quick, because I got a little distracted because you guys are being very funny in the chat. The key best practice is to use your newsletter to remember it is a sales tool. Um, people will unsubscribe and that's, that's fine. Um, it's a sales tool. If they don't want to be in your sales emails, then they can leave and that's completely okay. It's also totally normal. And some people will leave and come back by the way. It's like, don't, don't stress about it. Um, we've been open long enough now that I've seen people join my list and leave my list and come back and you know, people are doing their own thing. So we can't worry about that. Send emails consistently, but you decide what that is, right? My primary newsletter only goes out once a month and it's basically a recap of all of our podcasts um, from the past month. But we do have um, an email funnel that depending on how you get on my mailing list, you'll go through where you actually get emails twice a week for like four months, I think. But those are all pre-scheduled. I don't, that's not like me actively sending you emails, okay? Like we sat down and like did that work once and it just runs. Um, and then we want to make sure that the, that we are kind of mixing these, like, honestly, if you can only do one thing, like you don't have time, just send sales emails, like to be completely honest, don't, don't get distracted by sending like cool newsletters with like new moon readings and like updates on your life and like your dog and stuff. Um, if you don't have time, like just send sales emails. Cause that's, that's your job. So I hope that's helpful. Email best practices is like an entire course, <laughs> but there's some, some quick tips to get you started. All right. We have one final question today. Um, I have two audiences. Should I just pick one? Do I have to lol? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. So no. So they have different audiences. And the reason that is often kind of um, not recommended is because people get distracted um, because it gets more complicated in terms of creating content and communicating. So it's not that you can't have different audiences, different ideal customers, what we call core identity customers. Often different offers have different core identity customers anyway, or different kinds of people would benefit from an offer. For example, um, Holistic Business Academy, we could say that I have at a minimum two different core identity customers. I have folks who are spiritual entrepreneurs in the sense that they do spiritual work, right? They are spiritual workers. They are tarot readers. They are healers. They are um, astrologers, right? People who are like doing spiritual work, spell crafters, that kind of thing. But we also have people who are kind of adjacent to that. They may not identify their business as being spiritual, but they want to have a business that takes that into account. They want this holistic business. They don't want to be in a business training where they have to pretend they don't use tarot cards, right? So it's more of a shared values experience. And from that perspective, we have marketers, lawyers, we have other business coaches, we have people who do all sorts of cool stuff that is not spiritual, quote unquote, right? Like it's not like they're not spiritual workers in like a more traditional sense. So we could say theoretically, those are two audiences. And if I wanted to, I could create content really directed towards both of them individually. I don't because I'm lazy um, and it's working fine. <laughs> so that would be an example, right? Or for my business, I would say we kind of have two primary kind of core customers that we work with. We work with people who are in their starting and growing phases of business, but then in my one-on-one stuff and in my group programs, I'm working with people who are looking to scale, people who are already established in their businesses. Um, those are two very different customers, but I don't really, and I do often create content speaking to different the different customers depending on um, what I'm selling, right? When we've gone into an incubator launch in the past, when I release my new 
membership site program. I know I'm starting to tease it. I don't have a, I don't have a release date, but here you go. Here's your, here's your teaser. Um, that's for people who are already established business owners. It is in depth. It is intense. It is expensive. It is like a high touch, intimate, fucking amazing program. It's for people who are ready for something like that. The content's going to be really different speaking to business owners who already have established businesses and are either starting or scaling a membership site. That's different than the person who is doing their first few sessions and um, trying to figure out what they're growing, right? So this is all to say you don't need to pick your audiences. But the reason the advice is often like niche down, get super focused is to make it easier for you and ultimately for your customers. So if you can specify, if you can... Um, for yourself, figure out what they need to hear that's different and what they need to hear that's the same, then I think it's not a problem, right? You need to find those overlap places and those divergent places in your communications to make sure you're reaching all of them if that's what you want. Um, so you don't need to pick. You don't need to pick. I hope that's helpful. You don't need to pick. Do what you want. Um, I find that, yeah, so too long, didn't read, didn't listen. The kind of advice that I think is leading to this question of I have two audiences, should I just pick one, is really just about reducing confusion in communication. And often, especially in the first couple years of business, people are way too broad, not specific enough, um, trying to please everyone, trying to help everyone, especially spiritual workers. I love you guys, but, you know, we're all like, oh, but everyone could benefit from this work. And that's just it's not clear communication to folks. and It makes it harder for them to make buying decisions because they don't know if they're really the right fit. But if you're a little bit more established or you already have a couple different audiences and you have some skills in these communications with marketing, it's really not a big deal. Or if you know, for example, that like your offer really helps this person and this person, right? Like it helps, um, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know who answered, asked this question. Like you have, um, let's say kind of like alternative healers, but also professional therapists, right? You know, and you're like, well, those are different audiences. They're obviously called together because they want the work that you're talking about, but you probably will speak about them a little, speak to them a little bit differently in your communication. But that makes sense. It makes sense that they would both be interested in your work. So I think that's, that's the piece where it gets really hard. I think is when people have one business that is serving people who are not actually interested in the same things. Right. So for example, if I was, um, doing yes, holistic business coaching and also, I don't know, meal prep, Okay, which would literally never happen. Don't tell my partner I said that because he would would laugh even hearing the word meal prep come out of my mouth. Um, I'm very bad at that. So like that wouldn't make any sense. Like there's no congruency between those two things. Um, the audience would be different. Their needs are different. The products are wildly different. So that's a place where we might be looking at like, actually those are two different businesses. And if you want to do both of those, we probably want to separate them into two different business like communication streams. So I hope that is helpful, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think I got everything. Awesome. Uh, y'all are fucking brilliant. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions. Um, I do expect to be back here next week, even though I gave my big preamble about moving, but next week should be fine. If you are new here or this is your first time watching Free Coaching Thursday or you're curious about how you can participate on Wednesday uh, at some point in the afternoon, we post a little question box in my Instagram stories at Sarah M. Chapel, and you can drop your questions there and let me know what you need help with. And then on Thursdays around 1 p.m. Eastern time, give or take, TBH, um, I show up live and answer your questions. You can always check out the replay on Instagram. You can listen to it on our podcast. So you want to be a witch on Tuesdays. And we have the whole library there, so you can go and binge listen to them if you want. 
and I will see you all next week. You are all so welcome. So good to see you, Lisa. So good to see all of you. Um, I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. I will see you on the internet. Bye for now.